Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to Teaching Matters. This program is produced and recorded in the studios of WOUB Public Media in Athens, Ohio. I'm your host, Scott Titsworth, Dean of the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Teachers interact with students for a variety of reasons. As teachers, we might think about questions during class or even short meetings after class as attempts by students to gain additional insight on class-related topics. However, recent research suggests that students not only have differing motives for communicating with instructors, but also that those motives might change as the semester progresses. That's what we'll be talking about today. My guest for this episode is Dr. Scott Myers, who is a professor and the Peggy Reardon McConnell Chair of Communication Studies at West Virginia University. Dr. Myers has published extensively in the area of instructional communication. He is actively involved also in the National Communication Association, for which he is the director for the Association's Educational Policies Board. He is also the founding editor of the journal Communication Pedagogy. Scott, welcome to Teaching Matters. Ah, thank you for having me. It, it's great to be able to have you <laughs> join us in the studio. This is cool. Yeah, to drive over <laughs> from uh, West Virginia University, so it's great to have you here. So I want to start by uh, talking about the more general topic of instructional communication. Now, you and I have uh, researched that for our entire career, mm-hmm. and you've really developed uh, you know, an international reputation of being one of the lead scholars in this area, but it's probably a topic that many listeners won't necessarily know exactly what that term means. They they probably know instructional and they probably know communication, but we put them together for an intentional reason. Can you kind of explain what that area mm-hmm. is? Yeah, I can do that in a couple of different ways. Um, at the most basic level, um, instructional communication is really the study of instructor-student communication and how this communication affects student learning. Um, So from a historical perspective, that's what scholars in the field of instructional communication do. Um, Another way, and I think it's an easier way to possibly look at this construct, is to consider instructional communication as the ways in which instructors and students develop a communication relationship and then how this communication relationship either influences or affects student success. Mm -hmm. Um, I use the word communication relationship because That's what we are trying to do with our students. We're not looking to be their friends, um, or we're not looking to establish friendships or anything beyond that for the most part, although those things obviously can depend on the people. But we um, are interested in developing that communication relationship in which we engage in behaviors that are going to facilitate, um, obviously, effective instruction in the classroom, but also um, other elements that instructional communication um, scholars study. So... You know, for instance, you know, when I say instructor-student communication relationship, a wide number of instructional communication scholars actually study the behaviors that these instructors use, some of which are what we call instructional communication behaviors uh, because they're communication-based in the process of teaching. And we also look at the students as well, you know. So we look at both parties, their communication behaviors that they use in the classroom. We look at um, the communication traits they bring with them. We, there have been several studies that have looked at the personality traits of both. Um, instructional communication scholars also like to study the classroom environment, but usually within the context of this instructor-student communication relationship. So, you know, things like classroom climate, you know, in terms of whether instructors establish a supportive or defensive climate. Um, there's been research in the last 10 years, a growing body of research on, on a construct we call classroom connectedness, which refers to basically the ways in which students can develop relations with each other and then provide support for each other. 
And then we've always been interested in student success. And um, student success is the term I'm using to refer broadly to, you know, any student um, gains in their affective or behavioral or cognitive learning, any increase they may have in their motivation to either study or participate in class, whether they're communicatively satisfied with their interactions with their instructors. So it, it all falls under that larger umbrella. But at the end of the day, what we want to do as instructional comm scholars is really just think about, and, and I mean, this is something that's very practical too, is how your day-to-day -day communication with your students affects their ability to learn. And also, like I said, their success rate, which is pretty much, um, I would argue, is subjective because mm -hmm. for some students, as we know, success is passing a course, where for other students, success is acing the course. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're not as concerned about that as all. So you and I both have um, coursework in educational psychology. H how would you differentiate our field of instructional communication from ed psych people? Well, there's um, actually, they are considered two separate um, academic disciplines. Instructional communication does borrow from educational psychology. So educational psychology largely is concerned with the differences in how students learn. Um, and we don't study those differences per se in terms of their mental or cognitive development or ability. We study it in terms of the communication that occurs between students and uh, with their instructors. There was a book chapter from the Handbook of Instructional Communication, which I think the first edition is probably 10 years old. Yeah. And in, that, in the first chapter, which was written by Tim Mote and Steve Beebe, they argued that instructional communication is a combination of pedagogy, which is the teaching, ed psych, which is the focus on the learner and the learning, the way he in which he or she can learn, and then communication, which is you know examining the messages that we share with our students and the meanings that students create from those. Mm -hmm. So they are separate, but mm -hmm. there is some overlap, which yeah. makes perfect sense because if you are going to study student learning, you have to have a sense of how students learn to start with. I know it's hard to take an entire body of literature like instructional communication and, and sort of break it down, but what what are some of the key themes that, that characterizes that body of literature okay. that, that you and others have, have, have looked at? Yeah, there's, I mean, the foremost one, which goes back to the, the original um, conceptualization of this as a discipline, is the idea of to what extent do instructor behaviors influence student learning? You know, if you, if you go back to the beginnings of instructional communication research in the 1970s, which is really where this field started to gel, that was really the primary driving force. You know, if you go back and read some of the original articles in the late 70s, early 80s, they all were interested in looking at teacher behaviors, um, influence student affective learning, which is a nice way of saying liking for the course or for the instructor, student behavioral learning, um, and then student cognitive learning. We've um, straight away since that point in terms of behavior learning. For whatever reason, instructional communication scholars just don't study that. They focus primarily on affective and cognitive. That has been the primary body of research. And going along with that then is what we've seen since the 1970s is we've seen in it, um, the development and the extension of instructor communication behaviors. Um, that instructors can use in the classroom. And two of the most widely studied, and you're familiar with these as well, because you've used these before in your own research, would be instructor clarity and instructor immediacy. Mm -hmm. Those are, I think, the most widely studied variable um, in terms of just a behavior. Um, in the last 10 to 12 years, I think partially as a reflection of um, the Handbook of Instructional Communication, which was published, I want to say 2006, where, again, um, 
the authors or the editors of the book posited this notion of teaching from a rhetorical or relational perspective. So uh, what that means is when you teach from a rhetorical perspective, you put a lot of emphasis into your message design. You know, so when you're preparing your lecture, you're taking into consideration how clear you should be. Should this content be relevant? Relevant? How are you going? How you might use humor with mm-hmm. your particular group of students? And the relational um, perspective basically looks at developing that communication relationship and using behaviors, for lack of a better term, that makes students feel good. So that's been a trend in the last couple of years. Like I said, though. And I will say that if you look at the literature overall, you're going to see that there are certain times when, and like with all academic disciplines, there's going to be a topic that's hotter, let's say. Communication apprehension, for example, was mm-hmm. really studied extensively in the 70s and the 80s. We might use it now as a variable, but we really have not studied that. I think because we have gotten quite a, a – we've developed such a good research base on that. So yeah, so the instructor behaviors, which are part of that initial notion, that's the bulk of the research. I'll leave it at that because we'll come back to some other things in a few minutes. Yeah, there's a lot of tentacles, but I think that characterizes the field, um, especially for people that would be unfamiliar with it very well. Now, in your role as the National Communication Association Publication Board Chair, one of the initiatives that you've tried to do is to take uh, research from the journals and try to make them more uh, application-focused um, yes. so that people could use those for classroom impact. What What are some of the, you know, again, you've done a lot of work in this area, right. working with authors of various um, articles. What are some of the, the, the high notes or headlines that, that you would pass along as, you know, great suggestions from this body of okay. literature? Um, I think there's two primary um, suggestions. Um, I want to go back to the previous question because it just dawned on me that, you know, we are also very interested at any given point in studying what constitutes effective teaching. Mm -hmm. So um, that is part, I think, of um, the practical takeaway that that we can get from this body of research is that we're always looking to improve how we can teach. And one of the best ways is to think about your communication behaviors. So um, one of the, the practical applications of this body of research is that there's, um, actually I shouldn't say practical implication, I think one of the things that's arisen out of some of the work that um, the NCA um, Educational Policies Board has done is that there is a need for teachers, whether you're teaching K through 12, teaching at a community college, teaching at uh, the college, four-year college or university, or actually any other, you know, um, trade schools, even this can be applied to the organization when we're um, doing training. But there's a there's really a, a need for this type of research, and that's what we're finding. You know, we have created a series of we've created a new series. We had an old one called TRIP, translating research into practice, um, where we asked um, our instructional communication scholars from across the country to write a brief article on a particular behavior and tell us how to use it. Give us some ways in which a novice teacher or even a teacher just needs to think of new things to do, how to use that. And that's evolved now into another um, series which we're calling, which we've called Effective Instructional Practice. And it's very applied because, and what we found is that it doesn't matter if you're a brand new teacher or if you're someone who's been teaching for a while. This is good information to know. And also considering, too, as you know, most college professors are not trained to be teachers. Um, we get our PhDs, which are research degrees. We may or may not teach as part of an assistantship if we had one. And then all of a sudden we go to work and we have to teach. You know, everybody teaches when you get uh, your degree. 
And so we are finding that people are referencing and using these articles as, I don't want to say as a quick fix, but as an introduction to what this mm-hmm. is, because mm-hmm. you know, they're not interested in the research particulars, and, and that's fine. The second thing I think I want to point out is that you know these teaching behaviors are relevant to any teaching slash learning context. Um, what we've done as instructional communication scholars is focused largely on the college classroom, but teaching occurs you know, in K through 12 classrooms. It occurs in the organization, you know, when, when you are training people to take on a particular job. Mm-hmm. There, there's also applications for community work. You know, if you work with volunteers, these are easy behaviors that you can use to teach with, if that makes sense. Absolutely, Because yeah. I have done that. I'm on a, I'm on a, um, a couple of different board of directors in, in Morgantown for different nonprofits. And, um, you know, when we're teaching um, our volunteers to engage in particular tasks, we're, I'm using or we are using these behaviors. We have to be clear. We need to be relevant. We have to be confirming. So in terms of the practicality or the practical takeaways of the two, like I said, it's one, there's still a huge need for people in general to learn about these behaviors because they work too. Um, and the other thing is that any context in which learning is going to occur these behaviors will help those learners. Mm-hmm. Now, Scott, I can't remember. Are those those articles are accessible to the public? No, those? they're not. Unfortunately, they're, not. Okay. Okay. Um, they're they're accessible to all members of the National Communication Association, um, and they are available on the website. They're called Effective Instructional Practice, and we have some other features on there too, which I may talk about later. We're working on getting those accessible to the general public mm-hmm. because we have the experts. We have the research experts who have written those, mm-hmm. but they're written in a way that anyone you don't. Have have to be a researcher to understand this. I mean, this is, you know, these are basic behaviors. Right. right. We'll still put a link to you, NCA's website. Yeah, and, uh, and, 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 and hopefully, like so. I said, down the road, um, the, the, the current leadership, I think, is a little more receptive to this mm-hmm. than, than in the past. They do serve a good purpose for mm-hmm. those who have access Absolutely. to them. Well, let's turn to talking about okay. uh, the article. So, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast is I read a recent uh, publication that you did. Uh, it was a 2017 article in Communication Education, one of the NCA journals, where you talked about students' motives for communicating. And, you know, as a, as a teacher, I often think about the when a student comes to me, it's typically that we're trying to solve a problem together. And so I'm thinking about the issue at hand uh, and trying to solve that issue along with the student. But what's interesting about your article is you kind of broaden that out one level and say that it's not just that issue, but that, that students implicitly or explicitly have motives for even striking up that conversation in the first place. And I found that um, very fascinating because I don't think teachers I don't think te- teachers are often aware or th- take time to think about the fact that there are motives sometimes mm-hmm. behind why students are talking with them. So in, in your in your work as a scholar, um, you've emphasized this issue of student motives. And I wondered if you could start by sort of overviewing the study, and then we'll get into some of the details about what some of those motives are. Okay. But just kind of give an overview of what it was that you're trying to explore. Okay, so let me I just I'm gonna, I'll just start briefly by talking about what we call students' motives to communicate with their instructors. That's the official long title. The idea behind this, and, and we tend to, and I, and I may use the word motives and needs interchangeably. The idea really is that um, when uh, Matt Martin, Tim Mote, and I started working on this back in 1999, we were just curious as to the reasons that students might have for why they talk to their teachers. 
Um, what, you know, independent of anything else that was going on at the time, why do students talk to their teachers? And it's, um, this research is rooted in um, the interpersonal communication motives literature, which basically says that we have needs we need to fulfill, so that makes us motivated then to talk to people for certain reasons. So we were thinking the same thing with students. Um, and what we came up with, and this is all from the students themselves, we asked a group of students to just list the reasons why they talk to their teachers. From that, we then, you know, um, were able to narrow them down to, to five general motives. Do you want me to talk mm -hmm. about each of those well, five, or just, do you want to wait? Just before, okay. let me, let's stay more conceptual about okay. motives for a second. Yeah. So sometimes when we hear the word motive, we think about, you know, what we see on, uh, you know, nighttime television crime dramas. And right. we think that the person has a motive for doing what mm -hmm. they're doing. But motives can be both implicit and explicit, right? It doesn't right. Um, our idea of thinking behind this was, yes, this may be something that students purposely do, and this may be something that they don't put any thought into because mm -hmm. it's just something that's relatively routine. Mm -hmm. um, in the research itself, we've never really examined that because that's just the notion behind motives. Yeah, right. The basic premise, though, from the, that was guiding this initial research was that students have needs that need to be met by their teachers, and those needs then will surface in how they choose to communicate with their mm -hmm. teachers. Or yeah. instructors. That makes sense. Yeah. And so it's a little, um, sometimes it can be a little abstract when you're studying it because we don't know the rationale behind the motive. Mm -hmm. We know that the motive is there and that the need is, is either met or it's not. Right. Um, the, the kind of the neat thing in, in terms of this research, because we've been doing this now for about almost 20 years, is that we've really examined, you know, the whole gamut. We've looked at instructor behaviors. We've looked at student traits we, and student behaviors. We've looked at the classroom environment. And what we have found is that all of those influence, you know, the extent to which some students will use some of the motives. There mm -hmm. are five, but that doesn't mean from a practical level that all students will use all five. Right. And there's a good chance that there are some students who are never motivated to communicate with their instructors mm -hmm. because they're just not. Right. You know, it goes back to um, the function that instructors play. And that's, again, why I use the word communication relationship because that really is our function mm -hmm. is to communicate with our students. It's not... Um, to develop an intimate relationship. So before we get into the details mm -hmm. of, of this study, why don't you go ahead and explain the five okay. general categories of motives? Sure. And these are the five uh, we developed or arrived at back in, like, like I said, 1999. Um, we've talked about updating this because we think there are a couple more. And we've also, as I explained these five, um, we've had a shift in our thinking mm -hmm. in, in terms of, uh, of, of, of some of, of one of these. So the first motive is um, called relational. Um, and this generally just refers to students who are motivated to talk to you to get to know more about you. They want to um, develop some sort of an, well, I'm going to use the word interpersonal relationship with you, keeping in mind that we're talking, you know, not, not an intimate relationship. Um, but one in which it's in which they are compelled by themselves to want to learn more about you, mm -hmm. you know, because that generally I think makes the classroom more enjoyable, mm -hmm. and it can range. It could be something as simple as having something in common. Your teacher mentions here she's from the Midwest. I'm from the Midwest. Boom, we have a connection. Mm -hmm. So it can work as simple as that. Okay, and it can also extend to the student who stops by your office and wants to know more about you and ask you those pointed, directed questions. So the relational motive is is is, is that the functional motives deal simply with um, the functions of the classroom. The idea behind the functional motive is that students will communicate with you in order to get information they need to succeed. Mm 
mm-hmm. in the class. So a lot of that would be questions about an assignment. It could be, again, stopping by to have you read a draft of their paper. Um, but anything, it always has to do with the product that's going to come out of that classroom. Mm-hmm. The participatory motive refers to students who want to show their interest in the course by their behavior during the course. So, um, you know, students who are high in this participatory need, they want, you know, they will raise their hand, they'll contribute, they'll offer comments, they might talk to you after class about the class itself. But the idea here is we're motivated to communicate to the teacher to basically show that we're a good student. Mm -hmm. And again, good is a subjective term. And I will say, when we first started doing this research for the first 10 years or so, we considered the relational, the functional, and the participatory motive to be the essential motives. And we argued in a lot of our research is that these are the three motives we want our students to use with us because they tended to be, at the time, tied more so to their learning and their involvement in the classroom. Mm -hmm. The fourth one is called the excuse-making motive. And what we've and an excuse-making motive is exactly as it sounds. Students are motivated to communicate with you to explain why they didn't do their work or why the work is late. And it's initi- and keep in mind these are initiated by the student. So if, if an instructor says, Hey Scott, I know she didn't turn your work in, why? And you respond, that's not the motive, you know, because it has to come from the student. Um, and again, not all students are gonna be motivated for that reason. And this is the one that we consistently find, and we've argued that this is probably more related to a trait-like behavior in a student across the board, meaning that if, if you have a students who, who communicate with you for the excuse-making motive, they're probably doing it with a lot of their teachers. Mm-hmm. The, other, they, you know, the other three, not so much. You know, we consider this to be more of a trait on the student in terms mm-hmm. of his or her predisposition. The last one, which is an interesting one, because it has a little bit of a negative connotation, I think, and based on how the word we use, which is called sycophancy, or someone who's being a sycophant, we, we define that as students who want to make a favorable impression on the instructor. Um, when we first started conducting this research, I think we were looking at it as a negative motive in that and this was based also on how we were gathering the data, too, in terms of the instrument we were using. The idea is that this would be students who, are, who want a brown nose. I'm not even sure we use that term anymore, <laughs> right? Yeah. Or students who want to suck up to you. And this is the language that the participants gave us. Uh-huh. What we'd find initially is that the relational, functional, participatory mode pretty much always was related to something excuse-making, oftentimes not at all. And sycophancy, originally, not too much either. In the last 10 years or so, we're finding that the sycophancy motive is popping up quite a bit, along mm. with relational function participatory. My own perception of that is because is that I think students are thinking that they want to make a favorable impression on instructors, not for ulterior motives, which is what we originally thought. You know, because you think about someone who's a, who's a brown noser, we dismiss that, right? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. you know, we all as teachers have had students who's purposely tried to help us form an impression of them. But this, I think, is, is maybe more related now to the relational motive. They mm-hmm. want to make a favorable impression because they want you to think good of them independent of any motive they have for receiving something. Mm-hmm. If that, does that make sense how it I does. said it's that? Almost like a, it's almost like they're trying to reset the power differential. Um, yes, and, yeah. and, and I think there's a large number of students who do care what their teachers think about them. Um, either as students or as people. And I think we've all been in that situation where we had a good student who um, has not done well on an assignment, and he or she comes to talk to you about it um, to reiterate that they're a good student and they're not, and not looking for extra points or anything like that. That mm-hmm. would be, you know, I think more along the brown nosing. 
So I think the sycophancy motive, I think it's, and actually we're pro, we're getting ready to go back and revise or relook at these because we think there might be a couple additional ones. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. yeah, it is kind. Of, it is neat in that sense. Well, and it, and it was great to hear you talk about sycophancy in that way because you're right when you read the articles. You just kind of read it with the lens that that's probably more of a negative thing. Yeah, and even the term itself. Yeah, yeah. Right? I, I was glad you said it because i got to be honest, I wasn't sure how to pronounce it. And on oh. radio, that's not a good thing. So, <laughs> No, and, uh, you know, I think the first time I – and how we came up with that particular label, I can't even tell you. Yeah. <laughs> we had a different term originally, mm -hmm. but we changed this one because it reflected what we thought the motive was getting at. Right. Um, but like I said, I'm not so sure anymore because – like I said, in the last 10 years or so, we're finding that it's now it, – what we're finding oftentimes is the four, relational, functional, participatory, and sycophancy that are predicting or, or are related to item, you know, to other behaviors, where the, as the excuse-making is not. Right. Well, and, and you have to kind of assume that, you know, I mean, it would take a lot of evidence to be able to support this assumption. But right. you have to assume that the way that, that students' communication behaviors have changed in the 10 years since mm -hmm. you did this initial yes. study uh, because of their use of social media, of smartphones, exactly. always connected. You have to assume that some of that um, changes their motives for communicating because they have so many more options for how to communicate mm -hmm. now. You know, So yes. they can be somewhat more strategic, even if that strategy or that motivation is not mm -hmm. at the forefront of their mind. They do think more strategically about their communication behaviors because that's how they've grown up. Well, and, and along those lines, too, I mean, if you think about the relational motive, 20 years ago, how did you know anything about your teacher? Well, you relied on what he or she told you, mm -hmm. possibly reputation, possibly read about the person somewhere, right? But now you find that instructor's Facebook profile. You find their LinkedIn profile. Mm -hmm. So technology, I think, does influence some of these. Um, it, it influences, I think, even the channel, meaning students are maybe less inclined to even come see you anymore yeah. because they can text you, especially if you give them the, you know, if, if you give them a number to text or some of the tools that um, we can use in the classroom to promote student interaction that's all through some form of a media, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. of media. Uh, a quick side note, okay. one of the other podcasts that we've done mm -hmm. was a uh, person that's an adjunct instructor in, in New York. Okay. But he did an entire book that was uh, nothing but emails that he had received from students oh, my excuses. That's be, all it was. That'd be great to read. Yeah, yeah. I'll, <laughs> I'll pass along the link to you because it, it was all about excuse making. And mm. he is a teacher wow. trying to reconcile how to deal with you know, the real emotions that the students brought with right. those excuses against his sort of ethical uh, stance as a teacher about right. attendance and things like that is really fascinating. Let's get back to your study. Okay. That was a great side note. But, no, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so what was interesting about your study and, and, and novel and unique from a research standpoint is that you did a great explanation in the article of saying how many of the studies that we do across the social sciences, certainly in instructional communication, tend to be snapshot-oriented survey yes. methodologies. And what you did that was different is that you actually did a longitudinal survey methodology where you looked at students' motives and how they changed over time. And so the, the crux of your article mm -hmm. was to look for significant changes right. um, across the three points in the semester. So I don't want to talk about the methods. I want to talk That's about fine. what you found. So I'm going to I boiled down your findings to it. some statements. Okay. So I want to read a statement, which is my summary of your findings. You can correct those if I get them wrong. But I kind of want you just to react and kind of, like you were doing with the motives, you know, kind of give me your take okay. on That's... what you think might might 
very well could be driving this, recognizing that your study didn't ask the students questions, but right. your knowledge as a researcher and a teacher, you might have some insight in this. So one of the findings, students' relational motives for communicating with an instructor tended to increase from the midpoint to the end of the semester. Why do you think that occurs? Uh, I think there's a couple of potential reasons. And let me just start off by saying, too, that when I decided I've been wanting to do this study for a long time, mm -hmm. Because um, historically, traditionally, what we do as researchers is we assess student impressions, perceptions toward the end of the semester. Because we've always argued that it takes time to develop that communication mm -hmm. relationship. But I'm not convinced that there aren't other things going on during the semester. I mean, if you think of it from a practical perspective, when, when you're talking with your students or when any of us are talking with our students, we know that there are day-to-day -day events or what I think I say in the article, structural components that are going to influence student communication. Mm -hmm. You know, we you know for some instructors, for instance, you get an influx of email, let's say at midterm time, and you know why? Because they're asking questions about, you know, their grades or if there's some sort of midterm exam or project, that type of thing. There's a couple of different possible explanations for this. Um, I think, and again, th this is conjecture on my part because we have to go back then and study what's happening at each time. I think one is the students are probably more at ease at this mm -hmm. point. And, and, and instructors possibly might have loosened up by yeah. this point. Yeah. You know, when I go in on that first day, I want to put the hand, you know, put the hammer down if, if that's the phrase, you know what I'm saying? Because right. I want them to know what I want them to do and what they can get out of me. Um, which all ties into the functional moment. But so I'm a little more on guard about what I say and do. Mm -hmm. And then as the semester progresses, I lighten up, loosen up, particularly if the class is smaller. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, like right now I have a class of nine students. So um, I think I've become a little more informal mm -hmm. at this point. I think we're on sure. week eight or nine. So yeah. this would make sense too. So I think that's one reason is that we've lightened up, we've eased up. Um, and I also think, too, that students' uncertainty about the instructor has been reduced to a point where they're more comfortable talking with the instructor. Mm -hmm. Again, and it also could be just an artifact of the fact that for a lot of our classes, the work is due later. So maybe we are talking more to start with, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah. So Meaning I, the teacher's yes, talking. Yes. Yeah. I may yeah. not have to – as a student, I might not really need to talk or learn more about you because I'm relying on what you say in class. But as I actually talk more to you mm – -hmm then the topics may change. One thing we don't do with this research is we, um, I think we, 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 we don't take into account the out-of-class communication mm -hmm. that can occur. We're really, really interested in why you're motivated to talk in class. You know, but for some students, that, that motivation does extend outside. Right. You know, and again, for those students, there might be more of a relational angle to it, too. Mm -hmm. um, there's also a chance, too, that um, there's just simply more opportunity for talk. In class, you know, because again, we're both the students are um, are more certain about how to predict the teacher behavior or, or what things the teacher may or may not like. So again, I think they just start to talk more. Yeah. But I don't know for sure. That's sure. just my yeah. take based on, you know, my own teaching and observing other people teaching. Yep. Um, a, a second finding: students' functional motives for communicating with an instructor tend to decrease right. as the semester. I was progresses. a little surprised by yeah. that. Um, because it was a straight decrease down. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, keep in mind, this doesn't mean the students are not motivated to talk for functional reasons. They are, but it just decreases from day one. Mm -hmm. um, when I originally wrote the article, I really focused on this, and um, it, it 
was taken out. Editors. The editors. <laughs> he, you know, it was edited out, which is fine. Um, but I think this goes back to what goes on on the first day of class and the role that the syllabus might play. My syllabi are long mm-hmm. because I want them to know exactly what they're getting into. Um, and I lay it all out at the beginning. So from my perspective as a teacher, if I'm doing that, that might be one reason why the functional motive decreases. You don't need to talk to me if you have a very thorough syllabus in front of you. I thought, and um, possibly, um, and like I said, and on the first day, really reiterating what's important. You know, when I go into my classes, and I'm thinking of my undergraduate classes, uh, more so than my graduate, but, you know, I, I, Tell them up front what I expect out of them. I tell them what they're going to get from me, you know, and then I review assignments as we need to, right? Mm-hmm. Because we should be doing that anyway. But it's also all there. If they need a reference, the reference there. Mm-hmm. And again, um, I think for the functional motive, students can also, again, they can ask their peers who've taken the class beforehand. Um, they can refer to any document. Technology is easy too because I found myself. And I'm not sure how my students feel about this. I send a lot of emails to my students. Mm-hmm. It's not uncommon for me to send them one after each class or maybe once a week to just remind them. Mm-hmm. So, again, if they're getting reminders from their instructors, if, if we're using something like eCampus, which is you can have that built-in calendar or whatever, that may be why. Yeah. That they're, they're getting the information already in some form. You know, the way you explain that, uh, I think, is a great illustration of what you talked about with respect to instructional communication because the way you describe that – if the communication is working well between the teacher and the student, mm-hmm. that explanation for why the functional motive would decrease is dead on. Yeah, I mean, when I teach, um, I teach. I haven't taught in a while because I've been teaching other courses, but I have a large lecture class I teach. And mm-hmm. I was teaching it fairly regularly. And it, it can enroll up to 200. And so, you know, if you've ever taught that number of students, it can be difficult, but it also can be done well. But, you know, so part of it is I need that information to be there from the beginning mm-hmm. and to be consistently applied to everybody, mm-hmm. right? So when you do that, now again, I don't know, I'd love to go back and look more at the first day versus, and not versus, but with maybe combined with the syllabus to look at what teachers are doing to decrease the use of that. And, and again, keep in mind, we don't want them to not talk to us, but they don't need, they may not simply be motivated because we're giving them the information right. they need. Right. Because really, motivations are a response to a perceived yes. need. So and think about that this, needs being met. Yeah. And I think, too, um, with so many of us using some sort of an e-campus, is, do you all use that term? We here, use Blackboard. Blackboard? Yeah. I think it's the same yeah. thing, basically. We call ours e-campus. But I think, you know, we pop in the grades through that. Mm-hmm. You know, there is no... We don't hand back tests in most of our classes. I always tell them they can come look at them. Very few do. But they get that grade automatically. So it's not yeah. like when I was in college, you had to go outside, and, the, outside the classroom, office. Yeah. right? Remember? Yeah. Or outside yeah. the room or the office and look for your social security number to see mm-hmm. your grade. Yeah. Now it's instantaneous. I get the, you know, I can take my quiz. My grades are onto our campus grading place, you know, if, if there's Scantron. Mm-hmm. Boom. And it's yeah. already it's already uploaded into their system, you know, to their system. So, because of that, they don't necessarily need to come in and you yeah. know. And unfortunately, for some students, as we all know too, they just want to see the grade. They're mm-hmm. not interested in the feedback per se. Right. Right. So again, that might be another reason why the functional decreases because if I'm just looking for the number and not the written comments, that may be another reason for that finding. Yeah, absolutely. I'm intrigued with that one. I have to admit. 
Yeah, because I, well, I mean, when I when you first when I first thought about it, I thought, well, you know, end of semester projects, right? You know, it seems like that would provoke a lot of questions. But but again, like you said, if, if the teacher, if it's all been laid out already, yeah, and chances are the teachers are going, and chances are teachers are reviewing these things in class as mm-hmm. well, yeah. But it just, yeah, it just, I was surprised with that because it steadily decreased. Yeah. Yeah, you know. very consistent. And so that pattern. you know, and that the, can work in our favor. The third finding wasn't as consistent of a pattern. So, for psychofancy, yeah, um, their motives for communicating with an instructor started high, dropped at the midpoint, and then went high again. Yeah. So it was a, what what we might describe as a curvilinear right sort of trend. That one again, th- when um, I this finding was is making me rethink what this motive is supposed to actually capture. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I think back to practical things where maybe at the beginning of the semester, students want their teachers to think favorably of them, but then guess what happens? They get a grade or an assignment that might threaten that, but then they realize toward the end of the semester they need to, again, maybe get back in mm-hmm. the instructor's good graces. I mean, I'm not too sure. Um, but it was interesting how it started off high, dropped, and then rebounded. And again, I think going back with the relational one, uh, relational motive, I think part of it is just that, um, again, this is conjecture for the most part, but that students are um, more comfortable, they feel more at ease. You know, the classroom climate, because we have found in a prior study, classroom climate is important mm-hmm. with, with in regard to this. So the climate may have evolved to a point where they're more comfortable to start with to talk for these reasons, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's always that student who, let's say, you know, I always say, I, I had a student years ago who made it a point to tell me on the first day of classes, a large lecture class, that he was going to study and do really well. And of course, I should say, of course, what happened was he did not. And then toward the end of the semester, because we're getting to the end, he resurfaces to remind me of how important this class is to me. That would be the classic sycophant, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And I've only encountered a few that I would put into that category. You know, mm-hmm. I think also, too, toward the end of the semester, this is the last impression students um, – this is the last impression instructors are going to have students. So as a student, maybe I want to make it a good one. Yeah. You know? I, that's, that was the part that I was wondering about is if there's not for, – for some students that, that rise at the end mm-hmm. of, of them trying to establish their, you know, their credibility, if right. you will, if that's not about some future direction, like if they intend to become a major in that area or right. they want the instructor to remember them so that they can get a letter of recommendation mm-hmm. that's you know very detailed, you know, things like that. Yeah, I, I think there's more to this. Yeah, I mean, and again, yeah. this is part of doing the study um, because we've, we typically assess this stuff at the end of the semester. Mm-hmm. But what happens during the semester? Because so much happens. Um, anecdotally, you know, anyone who's taught knows you've – We a lot of us have had that one student where – the relationship started off well, and then something happened to it. The student might have done poorly and is embarrassed now to talk to you. The student has done poorly and blames you for it. And so that relationship never really fully recovers. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense, mm-hmm. what I'm saying? And so to me, that is – I have seen it, I think, in my own interactions with students. I, I don't try to analyze them in my hands. oh, she's talking to me for a functional reason. But you can kind of pick up on that stuff, mm-hmm. you know. If you've ever had to reprimand a student or really talk to a student about their performance, you know, that's always touchy because you don't want to turn that student off. You mm-hmm. know, and for some students, that is a turnoff, but others rebound from it. But it's also in part to how you communicate with that student after it as well. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. You know, so that student who might fall into your bad graces momentarily, 
might want to do better toward the end because it is that lasting impression. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know to what extent. I think I went in on the eighth week mm-hmm. with this study. And, you know, I think that's, again, all of us have taught when you teach a, on a semester schedule, you know, that middle time is where people, oh, including ourselves, we get, we're tired. Yeah. You know, my university does not have a fall break. Or actually, let me rephrase that. Our fall break is Thanksgiving week. Yeah. You know, which is nice because you get off a week for Thanksgiving, but we don't have a fall break. Yeah. And you all know that by the time you're at week eight or nine, everyone's a little jumpy, everyone's tired, everybody's irritated. Mm-hmm. You know, so that might be another reason why this stuff drops because maybe the students don't talk to us as much or are not as motivated to talk as much at that midpoint time. Yeah. And then once we get over the hurdles and we see the light at the end of the tunnel, now it's time for that calm relationship to, to be on the upswing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great way of thinking. I mean, you know... Uh, the way you describe it, I think, makes a ton of sense. And 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 as you know, I've I've uh, been looking at emotionality mm-hmm. in the classroom. I yes. also, uh, I think that this type of a longitudinal design with emotionality would reveal many similar mm-hmm. characteristics. Um, yeah. one, one of my doc students, I don't know if you remember her, Elaine Smith Sanders. Yeah. Um, her dissertation yeah. looked at emotionality in the classroom. Okay. And, Hers was more of a qualitative study in a high school setting, but right. but she talked a lot in that in that study about in her write up of the study about the the ebbs and flows mm-hmm. over the course. Right, and I just think that's fascinating, and it's something that as teachers, you're right, we we sense the rhythm of that in mm-hmm. our classes, but we don't have a lot of guidance on you know what, what how to think about that. Right, and, and this is really one of the first studies you know that that struck me as saying, oh, this is some guidance on how teachers can think about mm-hmm. that ebb and flow that they have with their students. Let's kind of turn to that. So, okay. you know, based upon these findings, which I, I think were really interesting, do you think there are takeaways that you would give to teachers? Have Has this changed the way that you think about your communication relationships with students as a okay. class progresses? I mean, what are what are some practical outcomes, recognizing that, that there would need to be a lot of follow-up for right. anything definitive, but what's your hunch? Well, I mean, um, I'm going to take this in a couple of different directions. I'm going to go back to to tapping into something you just mentioned, too. When I was working on my dissertation, actually, no, when I was working um, in grad school, I took a particular course, a qualitative course, actually, and um, I had to I had to shadow a teacher for a semester. And so I went into the class. It was a public speaking course. It was at 7.45 a.m., <laughs> Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And I literally was a student. I mean, I sat there. I didn't do the assignments. But I was able to watch the ebb and flow, you know, which is something that as instructional communication researchers we don't do enough of. Mm-hmm. We don't do hardly any longitudinal research. Part of it is the time commitment, I think. Um, and part of it is because you're going to lose your students over time as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I went from 600, almost 600 students to an end of like 282, mm-hmm. which is, I think, natural in the sense of, attri- of attrition when you're looking at something long term. Um, in terms of the takeaways, I think the big thing, and this this would apply to both people who research, but, but more importantly, I think those of us who teach, it just pinpoints that there are going to be some fluctuation in time um, over the course of a semester. And I think that's important for us to pay attention to. Now, not at the micro level, you know, where you're analyzing every single thing you do mm-hmm. because you'll just drive yourself crazy and you're not going to be an effective instructor. But to think about, okay, Again, if you're in a semester where there aren't a whole lot of built-in breaks, it doesn't seem like fall is. And I guess it depends on where you work, too. Yeah. 
you know, with the exception of a couple of holidays, you know, I work at a state school, so we're always there. Yeah. You know, we didn't yeah. have Columbus Day off, which a lot of my colleagues at other places did, mm-hmm. which I forgot all about, by the way, because we don't get those days. So I think one practical takeaway is it can just give you a broader idea of what's going on in your classroom. Mm-hmm. Stop and think about why your students are talking with you. Um, but again, not to the point where you're trying to analyze anyone, you know. Pay attention to, are there particular points in the semester where there are more questions, mm-hmm. okay? Are there particular points in the semester where students participate more? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you go back to the ebb and flow notion, um, you know, students may be less likely to want to participate, let's say, during a midterm week because their minds are on those midterms rather than talking in class, right? Because we've all been there. You have that student who participates all the time, and then one day he or she doesn't, and you don't know what's wrong. (laughs) And sometimes we're inclined to ask, what's wrong? Yeah. Well, I'm tired, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, so I think one takeaway there is is really for practical reasons is to think about what you're doing in your own room. If it's important for students, let's say, to communicate with you for a functional reason, well, then you have to work at that. Mm -hmm. I'm not suggesting that, of course. And I think the other issue, too, is that, you know, which, again, we don't, we know anecdotally, but we don't study it for whatever reasons, is we know that every classroom operates differently. You know, I've, again, I've taught classes of 200 and had a great time. I've taught classes of 10 and had a terrible time. Each class has its own personality, let's say. And um, when you find your students communicating for this motives, running these five motives with you, that gives you a sense of the classroom. Mm-hmm. I was talking with my colleagues the other day. So I'm teaching this class. Well, I only have nine students right now. It's a particular. It's part of my uh, McConnell chair duties. Is um, I'm running a positive communication initiative, and so I only have nine kids this year. I had 17 last year. Have nine, and I'm finding that they're a little more vocal with me than a lot of my prior classes. So they're communicating more for relational participatory reasons than I've seen in other classes. To what extent is that because of me? Mm-hmm. To, you know, And that's something for us to think about as teachers. Students respond from us. We know that. They take their cues from us. You know, I walk by some classes in my academic building where it is so quiet because the teacher's talking, everyone is listening or not listening. Mm-hmm. You know, So in that case, there's no communication going on. I don't want that type of a classroom. Yeah. I'd rather have the active borderline crazy type, you know, with, with people feeling that they can speak. That's always mm-hmm. important to me. Mm-hmm. So I think, um, you know, again, it's, it's really dependent on what you want to do with your, with your students. If you, um, you know, if you don't want them to communicate with you for relational reasons, well, then you need to monitor what you self-disclose. Mm-hmm. Now, at the same time, if they communicate too much for that, you may also want to monitor what you self-disclose. Right. You know, when I go and watch some of our TAs who are beginning teachers, you know, I will comment on them a couple times, like, don't bring up this topic because, you know, it may not be as relevant, but it also kills the mood, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You know, one of my students, um, well, I always talk about her husband. College students don't want to hear about your husband. There's no reference for that. You're, you're relatively young. They might even understand why you're married. So don't do that. So, mm-hmm. so a lot of it is really just thinking about what you want from your students and how you can then um, get them to talk with you. Yeah. And even just reading the list of motives caused me to think about, you know, if if I took that into consideration, especially knowing that there are these types of changes over time, there might be ways that I would build my syllabus mm-hmm. in anticipation of some of these needs. So, for example, yes. you know, towards the end of the semester, are there things that I could do in my class period that would facilitate 
the type of motives that students, you know, based upon your study would tend to be, you know, something right. a, something that allows more of that relational mm-hmm. dynamic in the class to come forward. Um, you know, things like that. Well, that, like I said earlier, on, on my first day, and I do this more so in a large lecture because when you, the more sense you have, the more control I think you you have to have up front yeah, initially. Right, right. But I have a slide, and I rarely use PowerPoint either. You know, I, I just talk and they listen and they contribute. But so on the first day, I always use PowerPoint because I want to make make a few points clear. But I have a slide where I talk about what I expect from them. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm on I'm honest in it, um, and I have a slide of what they can expect from me. And I, I have found that that, I think, is real helpful because if you establish the tone on the first day, which we know is important, but mm-hmm. we don't always work toward it, you know, if you want right. – if so if I want students to communicate with – because I fly out to them, I expect you to participate. So that might motivate them to do so. And that might not also, but I, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. You know, just because you're in this large room does not mean you're never going to talk. I'm going to learn your name. And then, you know, and then you're going to contribute back. Mm-hmm. And um, that works pretty well. Yeah. You know, so it goes back to what you're saying. If you, um, you know, think about what it is you want from your students, but we, ha- we have to articulate this as well. Yeah. You know, we have to recognize sometimes that students communicate with us for the wrong reasons. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that may not even fall into these five motives, but that's, that's a different issue. Yeah. You know, that's a student with a particular need that needs to be met, and you decide whether you are going to meet that. Mm-hmm. So one, one last question mm-hmm. And this kind of goes back to the, the more general area of instructional okay, communication sure. research, but certainly takes into consideration your studies as well. Are, are there areas that you think we need to move in in instructional communication um, to paint a, a better, more complete picture? Yes, I, th- I do. And this is something I've been talking with my colleagues about lately um, and with our PhD students who are um, interested in instructional communication. It, the, the first thing I think is that we, we need to know more about the student, I'm not talking necessarily their demographics or just what you know what they like to do. I'm talking about some of the attributes that they bring with them into the classroom that we as instructional scholars have not studied. Some things that ed psych scholars might have studied. You know, for instance, um, if you're familiar with the the Perry scheme of cognitive developments, an old theory that that basically says that when students enter college, they should be at um, Level one of cognitive thinking, and by the time they leave, they should be at level five. I'm just making up those levels mm-hmm. for, for you know, to illustrate my point. So there should be a progression. You know, well, we rarely pay attention to that when we teach. Okay, um, and that's something that we should do because if you read about that theory, the idea is that if you have a student who's what we call a dualist. A dualist student thinks looks at life in black and white. Mm-hmm. They think of you as um, the superior source, the credible source of information. You tell me what to think, and I'll I'll spit it right back at you. You compare that to the, what we call the contextual relativist, who realizes that you take the situation into consideration when you're learning. Mm-hmm. They look at instructors as facilitators or guides. All right. So when you have students that come in with that level or with that categorization of cognitive development, they're going to look at you in different eyes in terms of everything you do. And we don't think about that as much. We have focused so much on students' perceptions of instructors' communication behavior, which which just makes sense. That's what we study. But we then don't take into account what we don't know about the student. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we've gotten more, um, as a discipline, we become more aware of, of how important that is. But when it comes to actually studying it, implementing it, we don't do that very well. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't even we, we you know we ask students 
you know, for a couple of demographics, and that's it. Yeah, we yeah. don't ask, we don't, we don't assess where they're coming at, you know, from a cognitive development point of view, um, or just how they're developed as a whole person. Mm-hmm. You know, because the you know, if you think back to the old notion of college education, you come in one way, you leave another way. We also assume that you know. I shouldn't say we assume. I'm making a general statement, but you know, I think recently with with uh, politics, if you not you know taking into consideration that not all college students are going to be liberal, just like all college professors aren't, even though that's a stereotype we like to attach to that. Right. You know, but certainly those the ways in which students think are going to influence how they behave with you in the classroom. Yeah. You know, and that goes back to some of those motives too, because if you know if if. If, if I think you and I have something similar, I might be more motivated to talk with you. Mm-hmm. But I, we don't know that. Yeah. I, you know, it, it's interesting because if you think about the fact that so much of communication is developed because of life experience, and, mm-hmm. then, and then you start to think about, wow, the life experiences are so differing oh among my, my students. Right. How could that not affect the – the classroom climate, the communication relationships, and we, we and, and there have been scholars over the years that have said this. Yeah. You have to look at it from a critical perspective, or you just mm-hmm. you know, or I just say get to know the student as a whole person. Yeah, you know, and um, that's something we have not done a very good job at at all, and mm-hmm. that's something that we need to do. Yeah, and another the real quick thing too is we also haven't paid enough attention to what instructors think they bring to the classroom that might influence student success. You know, um, we just, again, we're, 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 we kind of found ourselves bogged in by looking at what students think of their teachers and then how these impressions, you know, influence what students think their success is. You know, what about the instructor? Mm-hmm. You know, I've done one or two studies on that. I'm getting ready to start a, a new one um, it, actually next week, um, you know, where we're interested in having instructors tell us what behaviors they use to contribute to their students' learning mm-hmm. without even looking at the student learning part, mm-hmm. you know, because I think we all have a good idea of what we do well in the classroom and we all, all probably have a good idea of what we don't do as well. Right. You know, but, but, but how much of that, what you do well is actually making an impact, mm-hmm. you know, and that's something we don't know enough about either. Yeah. I think the notion of, of, you know, in any any discipline, the instructor is as much an instructor as a mentor and role model right. all at the same time. Right. And, and, what about those latter two roles of being a mentor and a role model is mm-hmm. intentional, um, and how is it enacted intentionally? And I and I think going back to something you said earlier, where especially in higher ed, I think this mm-hmm. is less true in in K twelve, where they have such you know well defined teacher preparation right, programs. Right. But in higher education, we probably do not develop our faculty mm-hmm. in ways that helps them understand that mentoring and role modeling right. role that they have now. Many of them learn it, <laughs> yes, you know, and, and learn it very well. But but that's something we probably don't mentor very well. Um, no, as, I, as I agree with that. Yeah. Um, the role modeling is key. I don't. Yeah, we don't pay enough attention to that. My guest today has been Dr. Scott Myers, who is a professor from West Virginia University. He's also a named chair of the Peggy Reardon McConnell Chair of Communication Studies. I want to thank you for driving over. It's been oh, great you. to have you in the this studio. This is wonderful. Yeah, I really appreciate it. And, and look forward to seeing more of the work that you do um, as you continue to explore these motives. Thank you for listening to Teaching Matters. It's produced by WOUB Public Media. You can always listen at WOUB.org. Just click the Listen tab at the top. We're also available through several popular podcasting apps, including Google Play, iTunes, and NPR One. 
You can contact the staff of the podcast by with ideas, questions, or comments through our Facebook page. Simply search for Teaching Matters Podcast in Facebook and you'll find us. Our audio engineer today is Adam Rich. I'm Scott Titsworth. Have a great day and thanks for listening.